Welcome to Rants About Humanity, a podcast where we interview guest experts with passionate opinions about important topics that don't get enough attention. Raw, unfiltered, thought-provoking perspectives with no censorship. With your host, Philip Van Houta. Welcome everyone to the Rants About Humanity podcast. Today I have Christian Elliott as a guest. Christian has been a coach since 2003, logging over 15,000 hours of one-on-one coaching. His quest to heal led him to personally use over three dozen different alternative modalities. He's an author, speaker, and educator, and with Nina, built one of the most holistic brick-and-mortar fitness and wellness businesses ever seen. Christian, man, 15,000 hours of one-on-one coaching since 2003. Are That's, you a workaholic yeah. or are you so committed to it, man? <laughs> well, no, if you just do the math on how many hours you work in a year, you step back and like, it's probably closer to 20,000 now, actually, because this is just what I do. But yeah, different seasons of life, different things have filled my plate and realized that we transitioned out of brick and mortar about uh, four and a half years ago, so 2017, and realized that the service industry is really hard on family life. And so we've kind of done the virtual pivot to packaging what we do and helping people that way. But I still, coaching is near and dear to my heart and I love it. It makes me a better person every time I do it. Is it that intense dedication to your why and mission that makes you committed and show up? Because we can maybe later talk about procrastination or people who have really difficulty showing up and committing themselves. Yeah, yeah. I think probably a mix of two things. One is just, I have you know a wife and five kids. So I have every reason to be on mission and to mm. provide for them and to do my best to lead a family. That's a, that's a majorly important thing to me. But I had a, you know, a clean slate back in 2017 and said, I, had, I get to rebuild life pretty much from zero. So what does it look like? What do I want to put back on this plate? What kind of work do I want to be doing? And it kept coming back to coaching. I, I just love it. I like to be fascinated by the question, what would it take to create a breakthrough for this person? What would a transformation look like that lasts, that is an inflection point they can go back and look at and say, my life has changed and it's never been the same since that. And so there's a passion for that work. It's just being about something meaningful that people can look back and say, I'm so glad we crossed paths. Without that, I don't know who I'd be. That, That to me is a rewarding way to spend my working years. So it's really just those two things. I'm coaching a lot of my clients and their coaches and consultants. And one thing that they often struggle with, especially people with integrity, is they have this imposter syndrome. Am I an expert? Am I ready Mm -hmm. to coach? Am I ready to give something to people? So what would you say to those people who, you know, they probably have been involved in self-development, updating their skills, Mm -hmm. but something in themselves still says like, I'm not a coach. I'm a hypocrite. I'm not ready yet. Well, I mean, all of us could find something if we just wanted to logically analyze it and say, I am not good at that yet. I haven't mastered or I'm, I know somebody better than me. And to me, those are still poor excuses to not start. Like if what one thing that helped me was just thinking, okay, I, I could consider myself a second grader and I just get to teach kindergartners and first graders. Like mm-hmm. you just need to be a little bit further ahead on the journey that somebody else is on. And if you do it with humility and say, look, I don't have all the answers, but I'm, I'm getting better at asking really good questions. I understand this because I've seen so many people myself included, go through some of these challenges. And there may be some nuggets in here, some wisdom that can help. And when you don't go into it pretentious and pretending that you're just better than everyone and that you have all the answers and you can just with humility say, that's a good question. I don't know either. And do that enough times, your confidence starts to build and you start to solve a problem for one person and then you recognize the same problem in someone else. And so just committing to starting, to recognizing you don't have all the answers, 
nor do you need to. No one knows everything. So show up at your best with what you've got, where you are, and try to help people that are not too far behind you on a similar journey. And that usually makes all the difference. You get past that and your confidence grows. You can solve bigger and bigger problems the more you do it. I also feel this is the hidden, hedonistic adaptation from self-development that we're always looking forward. I mean, self-development is like looking into the future. Spirituality mm -hmm. is more about being present. Psychology or trauma is more working with the past. And mm -hmm. we're so focused on the future, like this person is better, like I could still improve here, that we keep this up, but we never look back on where we're coming from and celebrating like, oh my God, if my former self would see where I am right now, they would mm -hmm. love this. But we have this mentor comparing ourselves to Anthony Robbins, but we keep on leveling up. But we never see like we're so much ahead of our former version of ourselves. We could help people like us three, five years ago. Right. Yeah. Well, if you look at if you understand that you are not limited, that you can continue to grow in endless number of ways, it's easy to get overwhelmed with all you are not yet. And to your point, you forget how far you have come and how many different ways of helping people you have accumulated. And rather than get fixated on all these other areas where you see yourself as less than or not good enough, or just I'm striving toward it, but I'm not there yet. And to just realize that won't end. It's going to keep, yes. there's always going to be more you could do and accomplish. So what becomes enough and what problem do you enjoy solving and how do you get better and better at solving that problem? It lets you kind of just let go of the false idea that you can be perfect or have it all together. And you just get to go through life curious and humble and excited to turn another corner or open another door that blows your mind of a paradigm you didn't understand yet. And as soon as you walk through that door to be able to go, oh, here's a whole new world. And hopefully the work I'm doing now will look like ah, not as good six months from now. And I can keep saying that every, you know, so often I look back and be like, man, I have leveled up in a significant way it's because I didn't quit on the journey of trying to become better. And then that struggle, because actually the struggle, you label it a struggle, the interesting thing that you can still keep on learning things, finding novelty and grow. Because mm -hmm. look at these paintings by Roman Miss Bush of like, you know, purgatory, hell and heaven. Mm -hmm. People are bored out of their minds to like paint, you know, a peaceful state that has an end product. You know, it's like you think that you want to have an end destination and then you're there. And like for one minute, this is amazing. And then I'm bored out of my mind. What's the next mm -hmm. growth? What's the next things to learn from, you know? Yeah, well, you don't. we don't have to get bored with it if we're constantly looking for a new way to grow and not being defeated in the moment. But if your eye is for what else do I not know? Where else can I be enriched? And you have a problem that just endlessly fascinates you. For me, it was the, what does it take to create a breakthrough? Like, what would it take to transform this person? And so now I'm, I'm dealing with a different context, a different question. For an artist, it's a different paintbrush. It's a different color palette. It's just, what else could I do to iterate this and make it better? And yeah, it, it, as long as you can approach life through the lens of fascination, rather than frustration, you're going to go a lot further. And language is so important here because you can say like, oh my God, I failed. Or you can say like, oh my God, there's so much, much potential for growth or there's so much opportunities here, you know? Yeah. There's so much lessons to be learned, you know? It, it, <laughs> it matters like, okay, I screwed up or like I got feedback how I can improve. I'm curious how it will be better next time, you know? It's mm -hmm. the same circumstance, but the whole approach and mindset is completely different. No, you're totally right. It's, it's so, so much of this is the mind game. But once you, it switches from fixed to growth, like I'm, I, I'm not set. Like if it, I often catch people saying, I'm not a fill in the blank morning person. I don't mm. like breakfast. I can't go to bed. I'm like, can't? Never? Like it's impossible. Like, and as soon as you realize, okay, well, not never, 
you've wedged into your thinking possibility. And all it takes to go somewhere is just for possibility to enter and for you to be curious enough to ruminate on it and say, well, shoot, where could I go with it? You also work with holistic approaches and Mm -hmm. alternative medicine. And -hmm. then you also want to ask the question like, who defines that they're alternative? (laughs) Who who labeled them as like... You you want the, the real medicine or you want this fringe medicine? <laughs> right. The words are so powerful. I was just on a podcast yesterday. We were talking about, he asked me where the name for my blog came from. And so I just told him the story about how I wrote an article called, Is Conventional Medicine the Wizard of Oz? Mm-hmm. And I just ruminated on the word conventional and the mm-hmm. history that led it yeah. to become called conventional. Mm-hmm. And you started looking at it like, did we make some wrong turns here? Like, how did this become what we all call normal and everything else is fringe poo-poo like you're risking your life if you're some weirdo if you're going to dabble in that they intentionally chose the word alternative Mm -hmm. or non-conventional to try to make it seem like look we're the standard everything else mm." and when you recognize how powerful words are and what we choose to because two people can have the same word and mean something different well the more we understand what we're actually talking about when it comes to how we use words conventional being one the faster we can accelerate a dialogue that actually produces a, an understanding or a, a lens of history that says, wait, is that, is this narrative, is this story, is this thing I've been doing serving me or is it now in the way? I think people don't realize how much linguistics and language is a part of our life. Just the way mm-hmm. how you frame things, for instance, I'm going back to psychological lectures that I followed by MIT in 2012. Mm-hmm. You can frame something as like, you can rescue 200 lives, like in 600, or you can say like 400 lives will be lost. The exact same thing, mm-hmm. completely framed differently, how you present yeah. it. Same thing, conspiracy theories. It's mm-hmm. a theory about the conspiracy, but just right. the word conspiracy makes like, oh, it's made up. Same thing, toxic masculinity. Problem mm-hmm. is not masculinity. Problem is that we're toxic. I could talk about toxic spirituality, toxic happiness. It, it makes the thing toxic. Because, yeah, feminine <laughs> of the words toxic. Mm-hmm. But then that, that kind of contaminates the whole world and the term. And you have mm-hmm. like a bias towards that word because that word is already a part of the language you use. Yeah, precisely. It's, it's so important. And, and so much of the work I end up doing for clients is reframing the way they have used a word or helping them understand there's a there's an assumption you're making that informs why you picked that mm. word. And so often we miss the clue that's right under our noses when we take a step back, pause a moment and observe our emotions and say, wait a minute, like I'm believing that I'm that this is toxic. I'm believing that this is that someone else had this judgment against me. Where did I get that assumption? Mm-hmm. And if what would it mean if that wasn't true? And yeah, you're right. The how well we frame a topic with the words, conspiracy theory is my, one of my favorite. I've actually learned to embrace it. I'm like, sweet, somebody else has a theory about what's going on, where there may be a different a true way to detective, I call it. A true detective, right. yeah. And, and we, why is like the theory of evolution, game theory? Like we don't, theory is mm-hmm. not a bad word in those kinds. So why is it bad in this context? And who, who trained us to think it was bad to think that way? Those are some of the fun puzzles. We live on prescribed narratives and people, Mm -hmm. if people don't see it right now, when Trump was in the media in Belgium, he just lifted the shoe and it was the worst thing that he did that reminded people of Hitler and Joe Biden can read one sentence from a teleprompter and it's amazing. The economy is going up. You know, you can have the same thing about we can't do anything 
uh, about Facebook because it's a private company. It can do what they want. Same week right now, Spotify should remove John Rogan because it's misinformation. Whoa, that's the same government that said it's a private company and you can't change their policy. But then when it doesn't fit the propaganda, oh, then you can do it. So this kind of bias, oh, it's misinformation. Like, no, mm -hmm. this is not misinformation. This is misinformation. Who, 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 who decides that? Well, then it's not truth. It's just ideologic ideology mm -hmm. or certain institutions who define it. And it's not based on principles. It's based on ideology or preference, their preference. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one thing I've noticed lately, I've been thinking on it, is we have this framing problem, even globally, about what we're up against. Mm. And I think part of the heart of the problem is that we are we framed it as almost freedom versus tyranny. There's something about that that resonates of, we want freedom and we don't want to be oppressed. And what I think we're missing in that discussion is that we, we haven't really well defined what we mean by freedom or what mm -hmm. we mean by tyranny for that matter. Right? Freedom from what and to do what? Yeah. And until we have mm -hmm. a structure in order to answer some of those questions, we could still go right back to what we called normal before COVID happened. And please, may we not go back to that because that's what got us in this mess. So what would it look like to be free? And free from and free to do what? And so often we frame freedom, I think, inaccurately through the lens of I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. No one can tell me what to do and everything goes. And there's really, there's only, like you have as many genders as you want and you can sleep around and promiscuity is yeah. fine. And we just have all these loose moral underpinnings that don't really mean anything. And we come up with this fluffy definition of freedom to just do whatever. And we don't understand that's part of the problem. I frame it as we live in a matriarchy. We live in a toxic fem femininity. How will I explain it? Everything is subjective. Everything is a matter of choice. You can be triggered. Everything is emotional. You know, it's all based on feminine toxic principles. And the feminine without containment of the masculine, without boundaries, without structure, without long-term mm -hmm. vision, it's chaos. Absolutely. It's, it's endless options presented as freedom that overwhelm you, create anxiety, avoid, and there's nothing left. It's empty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're totally right. I, th I think where our framing of freedom versus tyranny, while it's, it's accurate on some level, there's another layer above that that actually explains what we're living through. And th the problem with it is that people have a, a tough time embracing it often. So I, I view it more as like there actually there's good versus evil. And if, if we can start to call it what it is and we can say, no, there's good forces in this world, this universe, and there are mm -hmm. undoubtedly evil forces. Often people recoil at the word evil and a lot of different reasons for it. But if we can view this meta-narrative of history through a lens that says, where, did, where would evil come from? And, and what might its agenda be? I think we can much more accurately see what's going on and stop labeling it as corrupt or imagining there's a few bad people, actors here, and that they have this narcissistic, self-aggrandized, whatever mm -hmm. we want to put to it. And we don't want to say, this is a systemic problem within humanity. And but for the grace of God, you or I could end up in the same place. If I was born to a Rothschild or a Gates mm -hmm. or a Schwab, yeah. Yeah. how do I know I wouldn't end up in that same place? But if we can step back and say, where did we get the framing idea that there isn't good and evil and that we're all just here and we can, we're good by nature, and we can question that assumption while unmooring and uncomfortable, it can actually liberate us to, to come up with a better definition of what freedom really is. I think it's how we do that. And we recognize this. No, this earth was, was created. It was designed. There's intelligence behind the world that was created. Mm -hmm. And I think the rub that people have with the idea of creation or intelligent design is that it implies something. Like if you and I were walking through a forest mm -hmm. or on the beach and we saw a pile of rocks stacked on top of each other, 
we would go, oh, someone was here. Yeah. Evidence of intelligence. There was a design behind mm -hmm. this. Or we go, I go into a building or a cathedral. Mm -hmm. And the idea that that could have happened by sheer random chance is so astronomically impossible that it's it becomes laughable at some point. And but yeah, we take that same view of Earth, of tides, of the stars in the heavens, of the, the reproductive system, the ear, the eye. There's such intricately complex things. And we go, well, it's enough time. It just popped up out of nowhere. And we have this meaning that we can't really describe because nothing means anything. It's just all random. And we miss the opportunity to say, okay, if somebody actually designed this whole thing, design implies intent. And it implies there's a certain way this world works better if we follow the design. Mm. And it's going to not work as well if we don't follow the design. So sometimes the rub is, is just it's offensive to our, our want to do what we want and to be in control and to say, no, I'm free to do whatever. And if we recognize that the you know just like lines on the highway weren't given, weren't put there to keep you from being an independent thinker, they were put there to help guide you. And if we can say something like you know the, the Ten Commandments, for example, that's not a bad way to think about going through life, murdering and stealing and committing mm -hmm. adultery and, and lying. It probably won't work out. So what if we did have a moral compass? What if we did have some underpinnings that said, "Wow, we could move life forward." Within a framework that recognizes there is good, there is evil, there are standards. And it's okay. It's not just okay. It's life-giving that we start to think and live by them. My theory is that there is lack of self-respect and self with a big S respect. That mm. there's self-loathing. And that is going against personal responsibility, which is one part, but is also losing our connection. Losing our connection mm. to God, consciousness, source. Losing our connection to the color of our skin or heritage or male or female essence or history. and then. You're just shame living without any form. Anybody who then is like Black Lives Matter, transgenderism, they're not for something. They're just not something. They're anti-something, mm -hmm. anti-matter, let's say. And because you have nothing to stand for, you stand against something. You dismiss personal responsibility. And when you have anxious, empty, stressed, childlike, triggered people who don't take personal responsibility and there is an object of fear, what happens is they look for the quickest way to blame other people for themselves' situation and mm -hmm. at the same time look for the quickest way for somebody else to promise to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's what I see a lot. Empty people not standing up, not connection to themselves, to to universe, to their community, not taking personal responsibility, blaming other people, and then looking for a savior to solve their issues for them, like a dangling carrot that, that never really satisfies mm -hmm. them, but they keep on running in the false hope. Yeah. Well, and a question I, I put to that kind of um, framing is, uh, where did we get the idea that somebody else is to blame? Like, what, we've, we've lost the plot almost of humanity. Like, what is mm -hmm. the narrative arc of, of where all this is going? And if we can not be too uncomfortable with the idea that there, there was design, there was intelligence, and this, this history is, is trending, it's going somewhere. And we're okay with saying that there's a, there's a set of boundaries in here. We, and we, we don't lose the, the fact that like from, I, I come from a Christian perspective. So I see yeah, that. Just, so what you said before, do you think mm -hmm. this partly has to do with that we don't believe in evil anymore? Yeah, I think it is. I think if you would it, it, try it on precisely, I don't know everything, but it's it's at least a thought experiment. It, it, see if you can't explain most of what we see in the world through the recognition that there's a created order, that there is good and there's evil. There is in, from the scripture, there's, there's a, a league of fallen angels who have their whole MO 
What they exist to do is they can't create a darn thing. So they exist to mar and wreck and distort and to weave evil and all sorts of ungodly things into the human experience and to so confuse us and to do it overtly rather than covertly. That is evil's MO. It's if you want to pick something egregious, if you want to whatever the nasty thing is that you'd want to do. If you have, if you, if that is the way that you see and, and operate in the world, you have a marketing problem. Nobody's going to want to sign up for that. So you have to take a lens of how would I do this overtly? We don't this have is to look- again, by the way, very feminine because feminine <laughs> from a distance, uh-huh. you don't see it as passive aggressive. So I didn't make them do it. Yeah. But uh-huh. you spun your web of intrigue that you had the marketing and you manipulated people, their perception. So they do it. Yeah. But I didn't do it. I didn't take that action. Yeah. Well, if you look at it through the lens of, like, I think scripture says God created man and woman in his image. Okay. Well, that we're different. So, but it's not just gender. I think it is essentially we each got half of the image of God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when the two, the beautiful sides of both Mm -hmm. of them come together and manifest a different thing where men get to be lions and warriors and we get to fight battles and we get to rescue beauties and we get to have adventures and and the feminine gets to nurture and to be beautiful and to join in adventure and play a supporting role in Neither one is better or more important than the other, but it's it's them together that makes it. And if we just focus on one aspect of it, we miss what, you know, to your back to your point about toxic toxic masculinity, either gender could be toxic and it's less well-manifested state of of who they are. But when we become okay with saying, no, there's different roles that we have here, there's different beauty that we can bring to this world. And we're fighting the same battle against an evil that wants to steal and kill and destroy and enslave. That's the MO of what we're up against. And through that lens, what Klaus Schwab is doing makes sense. What the the central banking industry, which blew my mind how corrupt and mm-hmm. uh, there's so many, there's like COVID has freed me, like four or five different major ways I've viewed the world have been turned upside down since COVID started. Because I, I coach having the willingness to question your own assumptions and say, wait a minute, what? What if that wasn't true? What what else could be possible here? And evil lurks in the shadows. Why? I knew I, I call the three main things that evil does lies, manipulation, and deceit. Because mm-hmm. it's from a distance, right? Yeah. It motivates covert. the actors and covert and it motivates what they do. So when we yeah. look at this political correctness, as this mm-hmm. radical feminism, at this transgenderism, at this anti white movement, anti-Western movement, all those things. What do these things do? Identity politics. It destroys the identity of people. And identity, it shouldn't be super rigid, but it's something that provides a stable foundation for people. And when you remove that stable foundation, people have nothing on to rely on anymore. They don't have a core. They don't have any structure and framework. So all these things, when you take off the lens of all mm-hmm. the brainwashing, also with the climate change and all the propaganda purposely being pushed the last 20, 30 years, you see like, this didn't come out of nowhere. This is setting up the sexes. This is confusing young minds. This is confusing about people elements in life. This is not having people politely discuss an issue. They just like, mm-hmm. you know, immediately get triggered and discuss, with, which they have with like uh, political correctness. So it mm-hmm. set things up, but it's being set up in a way that you know, identity, the connection, the polite discourse disappears. So that is what I think. This is my true detective side. Mm-hmm. This is purposely done. Oh, absolutely. It's purposely done. There's a fantastic or insightful quote I found from 1924, where they talk about leveraging the political party system to divide the population with questions of no importance. They're mm. intentionally trying to distract us while they move the money, while they centralize power, and while they, quote unquote, form an imperialism to govern the world. This has been going on a long time. This is the next iteration 
of the timeless battle between good and evil. And they have they know their quote unquote principal men do this covertly while we're distracted arguing about viruses and natural immunity and yeah. distracted about arguing how many genders are there and yeah. and all the stuff that lets them continue to don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain here. Yeah. We're actually centralizing and collecting all this and we are intentionally manipulating you and creating all sorts of different topics racism and whatever to distract you from the fact that we are actually actively working to enslave you and to destroy your sense of agency or your ability to make a contribution or think clearly in this world look just at blm blm is important just before a Republican president gets elected, not that I'd want to choose a side, but I'm just showing how hypocritical it is, you know. Then mm -hmm. you have the vice president of the first black president for eight years who didn't do shit for the black community. And then we have the demented teleprompter guy now. And now, no, racism is not a problem anymore. Now, uh, yeah. now we can chill again. It's soft. All it needed was just to elect a demented president who had got the most votes ever, even more than Obama. That's how popular it is. Even that I see tumbleweeds in his brain when he's trying to stare into the camera. And now, yeah, no more institutional racism. It's soft. Like when you step outside of the matrix and have the big picture, you kind of see like how, how manipulating people, their perception or what they can debate about is actually indeed feeding those things higher up, but you mm -hmm. keep them occupied, divide and conquer, give them games and play that they keep on acting like it has any effect and higher up, they just get more of what they want. Yeah. Well, and recognizing, I, I didn't realize till not that long ago that we live under a system of immoral money. We live under a system yeah. that it, it's corporatocracy masquerading as capitalism. It is well-curated narratives that are fed to us on a timeline for a particular agenda. And while that's to some people, that sounds like hilariously fantastic and conspiracy and it's have a hard time wrapping their head around it. I would challenge you to say, why does it feel that way? It's probably because for your whole life, um, you have believed a particular way. And to question that now means I'm quite, I'm, it's unmooring to think that people I thought were trying to protect me are now out to get me, or they've yeah. been manipulating me, or what does it say about my intelligence that yeah. I missed this? And that I, that's so uncomfortable. I'd mm. rather just continue to believe what they've told me for so long and say, you know what, that, that can't be true. I can't believe that would be true because why would someone do that? You just, you just went religious right there. You just went into a belief system that says whatever Pope Fauci says, Therefore, it must be true because I can't believe that someone would manipulate or that evil could get this organized or do these kind of things. And if you're willing to wrestle with the unmooring of what it means and realize it's not a shot at your intelligence, the chances that you were going to wake up day one in the matrix and be able to see the whole picture clearly, yeah. that wasn't going to happen. So the, the mass wake up is one of the things that gives me so much hope about what's going on globally of how many people are freeing themselves to question things they never questioned before and how liberating it can be to start to do that. You could make a video on the right side, the so-called conspiracy theorists, what they've been saying for two years. And one of the things that they predicted is true. And on the left side, you show videos of Fauci and all the other experts like, we will never do this. It will not be this. Then it's solved. This would be okay. This is the final solution. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, wrong term. I don't need it <laughs> in the what, No, but term. Bill but, Gates but, used but, that term. Yeah, exactly. I know. And then, and then you compare the columns and it's like, okay, we're the conspiracy theory theorists, but look at our column. Like we can put check marks at so many things we said. Look at those left side things that they said, all been scrapped, all like red marks were just like lies. How far does this evidence has to communicate to show you like, I take it, I know it's uncomfortable and I respect someone to just say, you know what? I've been fooled. I've been lied yeah. to. It's very uncomfortable. Yeah. 
but I have to admit it now, which for me is brave, sometimes even more brave than to be a so-called conspiracy theorist to stand up and be against it in the beginning, but just to mm-hmm. let, you know, admit that you were like fooled. But how far does this evidence has to communicate with just clips you can show right now, every two months, what politicians said. And then you see that they totally decided, yeah, we're going to make it mandatory. Oh no, we want to have everyone. We don't do it to kids. We won't have a QR code. Look at so many things that they said. And then mm-hmm. two months to six months later, bam, the back panel then changed it. So how, 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 how much these columns have to be different for you to at least think like, whoa, maybe some part of the other side, the true detective side is true. Yeah, it, it takes a, a, a willing mind to do that. And I, I would imagine that the, the people who have been puppeteering this have studied psychology and how to manipulate mm-hmm. the human heart and so many different ways, even the Milgram experiment where they had people shock participants because the person in the white coat was telling them to do that. And most of the people would do like seconds, like 71% of people kept going despite the pleading of the other person to stop electrocuting them. Like we have this bias toward trust, especially of an authority figure. And some people, it, literally they're in a hypnosis. It, it, it's or what Mateus Desmond calls mass psychosis this or mass formation, this recognition that they are, they're so under the spell. It, it takes questions like what you're talking about, the lag between reality and conspiracy mm-hmm. theories like three months at the most right now like <laughs> spoiler okay, alerts yeah spoiler, yeah oh it, what they said it's actually not true but doesn't matter how many of those we line up and show side by side and mm-hmm. present our case and we can just be flabbergasted that somebody else would do that they've got so much trust or it feels so insecure to question that that i would rather live in that realm and have that not be true i'll just believe whatever new spin fauci or whoever puts on it because they were just following the science or they were just doing things. And if we can have the ability to interrupt them, not with more facts, not with more argument, arguments, and to say, to, to zing them with the question that somebody else is going to have to water that seed. Somebody else is going to have to throw fertilizer on that. Somebody else will echo that somewhere else in their consciousness. It's the, it's the non-threatening, well-worded questions. You know, they, what, you know, I have a hard time with the vaccines is that they don't have any liability for it. Like if somebody gets, if I get injured from that, there's no recourse for me to help. Like that's given me pause, just that nugget. And there's dozens of other ones you could pick. Yeah. Where's the flu for two years? Shouldn't right. we focus on prevention? Mm-hmm. What about those, you know, you won't change them with numbers, but you have the column where you compare all the famous diseases, Ebola, polio, and we can have an all other disease topic about vaccines and mm-hmm. effectiveness and stuff. Yeah. You can have a column where you see, okay, how deadly is it? Mm-hmm. How protective is the shot? You know? And then you look at the columns and you partly see like if it would be a big skyscraper, you know, in terms of like mortality for Ebola, you just mm-hmm. see one little step. Like so small it is, you have to like pinch your eyes to see something. And mm-hmm. then you look at it like, okay, so that is the mortality rate. And then you look at like, okay, like how effective is it? And then you have like, if, if you would be naive, three to six months. And then you can mm-hmm. still spread it like, what? We spent billions <laughs> of dollars while making people sick, more lonely, unhealthy, while the top deaths of people, cardiac uh, diseases, obesity is going up. Mm-hmm. And you have something that is so low in mortality, 0.15 for an average death of 82 for women, 78 for men, which is people who die from whatever anyway, because they're prone mm-hmm. to dying in that age. Then how, you look at how many shots do I need? Just one and I'm immune. No, several, you know, every three to six months. 
And then you say like, oh, cool. But then I can't infect people. No, you still can. Mm -hmm. And like, how does this whole approach add up? How is this a good spending of resources? And how can you not see like, whoa, there's something completely different going on here than with the other vaccines or diseases they compared it with? Yeah. Well, and if you... If, you, if you're having such an argument or you're, you know, just looking at the raw data or the news headlines or the contradictory flip-flopping statements, you can present those to somebody who's still in the matrix, somebody who's still following the mainstream narrative and say, rather than, obviously, I have the winning argument, so you need to come over to my position and yeah. admit that you're wrong. That's somewhat offensive yeah. to our intelligence. So mm -hmm. a way that I would potentially handle that is, what is it about these that seems fishy to you? What is it about this that mm. doesn't make sense? And let them yeah. try to explain why they don't trust the data I presented. And where did you develop so much trust in the institution that you have? How did? Yeah, or what do you think is that's the doubt people, right? Just some people are so right. bought into the narrative, you won't convince them. But some people, you want the seedling of doubt. Like, what, what, yes. do you, what do you not agree with? Or what do you think is a bit exaggerated? Yeah, the, the tobacco industry leveraged that for several decades to keep tobacco going in, in cigarettes and not admit the harm they were causing. The, the digital infrastructure of Wi-Fi and cell towers and, and all the electromagnetic EMF stuff that we're living through now, they're using the same playbook of doubt. There's a marketing agency and doubt is their product. As long as they can put a seed of doubt into your consciousness, you have a plausible way to explain whatever's going on and not wrestle with the bigger questions or not actually explore what it is, like I can continue to live with the idea that holding a cell phone to my head for 10 years won't give me a brain tumor. Mm. Or you could explore what, what might it mean if I did that. But to your point, if, if we can plant seeds of doubt in the mainstream narrative and do it effectively and offer them not a threatening, like you're an idiot for not believing this, I can't believe you, but offer them a question that says, how did you develop trust in what you are perceiving that the mainstream media is telling you? Have you always just been skeptical of skeptics? Or have you been ever been skeptical of like big corporations or pharma or government or leadership and and if they don't have 100% of your trust then what what's helping you default to trusting them in what they're telling you and disbelieving anyone who's skeptical of that just help help me understand i really genuinely want to understand your thinking and offering them the opportunity to try to explain that they'll end up tripping over their own logic and having a harder time explaining yeah why do i like it, it, maybe it's not in that moment that you're with them, but somewhere yeah. in the course of their day, their week, their month, year, they're starting to be able to, like the matrix glitched a little bit. It got fuzzy. It's like, wait a minute, that is that actually true? Somebody told me this months ago. And to me, that's part of why we're waking people up in mass. And not to mention the amount of freedom protests that are going on right now, where it's like, finally, it's like, it's yeah. not weird to be part of a big crowd and to go out. And that, that just feels good unto itself. So People don't know how severe the situation is and how far and how low we've gone on so many elements that you look mm -hmm. at and back and like, what the hell? We're having people wear masks for two years that have no effect. I don't wear it anymore. And some people got motivated by what I do. Other people, they just want me also to suffer. They know maybe deep that yeah. it doesn't work or some people do and trust the science. There's no science for it. None. Just right. a John Hopkins came out that maybe a lockdown saved 0.2% max. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 the the benefit from all the loss that they have. 
Which um, doesn't get counterbalanced with all the harm that they caused and the psychological damage. But they the never kids. show that. Like if they would show, right. uh, if they would show on the top left of the screen, like numbers, like how many suicides did we have today? How many heart attacks? How many businesses were closed today? How many mm -hmm. car accidents were there today? Never shown, never compared. Right. Only the small framing on deaths, hospitalizations, and infections. Yeah, that's the narrative. And when you have control of the microphone, like has been worked on meticulously through several decades or centuries to have exclusive rights to puppet the narrative you want people to believe when you recognize that history is written by the people who won the battles and they now control media they control money they control so much of what we have come to expect as just normal life and to open your eyes and say wait a minute what other ways am i being potentially misled by only this story any 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 story we can think of there's other detail can two people are arguing What's the other side of the story? And we don't get that in mainstream media. We just get the, here's the one story and you believe it. And if you don't, you are a right-wing nut conspiracy theorist, yeah. you know, cultish type person. As also, Trudeau say, with unacceptable views. Yeah, we're, we're disembodied also, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I did the research. I, I, did, I did again look up like how much facial recognition is so important for children, their development, mm -hmm. how much is embodied. Like you, you, you see how much, you have this experiment where you have a baby, you know, going over something that seems like canyon, you might it's glass, mm -hmm. and then it looks at its mom and the mom is smiling and it just crawls over it because it looks, is this okay, mommy? Check in, you know, like mm -hmm. have that human connection. Mm -hmm. How much of our spiritual connection or human connection or social connection is being destroyed mm -hmm. with the false promise of let's re replace it by digital connection? Because the image we paint right now is people are parasites. Mm -hmm. They can infect oh people, gosh. they pollute the planet. Mm -hmm. So what does it mean? Stay away from people. Stop focusing yeah. on human connection. Replace it with online likes, online meetings, the online metaverse. Why? Because they can centrally control it with technology. So mm -hmm. more and more of this, the big tech or big combinations, mm -hmm. they can control your behavior and perception. And that's underneath. But we are embodied social human beings where, you know, that is a part of life. Culture is a part of life, hugging, touching, you know, that makes mm -hmm. us feel alive. And yes. all those things are not being put at the forefront. It's like with religion, you sometimes had something sacred socially, existentially, spiritually. And now it seems nothing is valuable anymore. There are no values and we just have to worship technology. Yeah. Like we're well, just an app or a product with a QR code and we have nothing meaningful or lifelike in us anymore. Yeah. And we've given over our sense of agency to technology and some levels that if you are using a free technology a free software you are the product mm -hmm. and recognizing that that has monetary value and the way that these people keep you under their spell or the way that what the what masks signify or what had news headlines that are meant to irritate us signify what the, the weapon our enemy is using is simple it is fear and as soon as we recognize that fear is what they're trying to do and we see the lens through it how is this trying to make me afraid? What does it mean when mm -hmm. I see someone else in a mask? I'm now, I, there's an anxiety level that kicks up that we may not think like each other or that they may be infectious or I might be, there's, there's some other thing. And if we can ruin the idea of fear that, that whether it's talking about, one of my mind's being blown recently on contagion, is that really a thing? Like, do viruses actually like the exist? Like, by, uh, oh yeah, my gosh, yeah. like you start going, like, yeah. these are really compelling arguments and I don't yeah. see anybody refuting yeah. it very well. Mm -hmm. But if you can recognize that fear is the, the weapon that they're using and you can, you can 
recognize that the scripture says God did not give us a spirit of fear, which is, okay, so if you're, from a Christian perspective, if you're living with fear, where's that fear? Where's that coming from? Nowhere good. That's, that's a weapon that is being used to manipulate you to steal, kill, destroy. And the beautiful part about that verse is that it, it says, we've been given a spirit of power and love, and there's different translations for that, the sound mind or self-discipline. Like, so what would it mean to step into a spirit of power, right? To recognize that we are not powerless to stop this, that, that we are being manipulated by people who want a particular thing. What would it mean to step into a spirit of love? Right. When, you look, a, yeah, when you look at evil as trying to use the fear to go against humans, mm -hmm. God or the good would use fear, contribute and be humble. Yeah, <laughs> For well, the same thing, but like, like you're going <laughs> to die one day, like, okay, then you have to go against people to live as long as possible and just sacrifice a meaningful or human life. Another yes. good person could say like, yeah, I'm going to die. That means like, what do I want to leave behind? How can I contribute? How can I be humble knowing that I'm going to die one day? Like mm -hmm. again, the same situation, different approach. Yeah, well, fear, like fear of the Lord is to me is it's a recognition that we are created and that we are fallen and that, but for the grace of God, we could be sucked into any sort of evil. And it's a, it's a fear that says, God has given us a set of boundaries and I'll do my best to live up to those standards, knowing that I'm not perfect, but his grace covers me. And to recognize that fear is a spell over us, that it is a tool doesn't mean um, that we can't break it. And to step into power and love or self-discipline, those, those three together, to me, paint such a, an amazingly comprehensive picture of what it means to drive out fear. If power and stepping into the recognition that we have the ability, if we image God and he's a creator or he's a sovereign being, that we image him somewhat in, in creating and being sovereign and, and offering the best of our labor to this world, knowing that... Um, the work we're doing is temporary, but it gets to add meaning and richness to this world. There's, that's our sense of power and, and love is the thing that, that keeps us humble, that keeps us from intertwining our, what might be neurotic or narcissistic tendencies into accruing power, right? The, the people who are puppeteering what we're living through are not living in the spirit of love. They're living in it to your, they think of humans as cattle, or parasites, locusts. There's this, oh, this cancer yeah. that's on the planet that needs to be eradicated. And they perpetuate this view of the world of scarcity and doomsday mm -hmm. and everything is going to, we're at the end of the limits. And when you recognize the world is abundant, you plant a, an apple seed in the ground, you get a tree. And how many apples you get off that? You can, you can plant a lot more. Like if the earth, we've barely tapped into the abundance that this earth could produce and humanity moves forward more when there's more of us, not less. And there's more abundance than we have ever tapped into. And so the spirit of power, love, and self-discipline says, well, how do we become a steward of this? How do we step into this world and actually make something of value? Self-discipline or, or sound mind means you got to pace yourself, right? You're not omnipotent. You can't be two places at once. How do we step into this world and create beauty that, and love that just drives out fear? Because wherever I go, if I'm not afraid, I'm able to step in and love my neighbor better. I'm able to have people recognize, I don't know what you guys are doing over there, but I need some of that. Like th To be able to love my fellow humans to such a degree that it, it feels life-giving to those around, you, you, you step into that environment and you're no longer afraid. And when the spirit of fear has broken, <laughs> you start to see everything differently. You can see the headlines and whatever we're living through going, oh, this is just an attempt to manipulate me. How do you, you have this sometimes this meme 
where you see people glued to the television and it's showing rain all the time. And they're mm-hmm. like with an umbrella above themselves in their living room. And then you see through the window that the sun is shining outside. How <laughs> do you pull someone out? Of- to me, there's, there's a few components. That one is to figure out what they are afraid of. And to me, fear is like anger. It's a secondary emotion. It isn't necessarily bad. It can be, it can be a radar that goes up and say, wait a minute, something's off here. And where is that coming from? And to me, fear is a symptom of an unmet emotional need. And whether we're, you know, we're speaking in the highest level of a God-shaped hole that only God can fill, or whether we're, we're, we're talking about the way we image God, there's, a, there's basic human needs that drive, I throw these out and nobody's ever been like, well, that doesn't make sense. These are, these are the things that drive all of us. We all want health and love and adventure and romance and significance and dignity. We have this hardwired sense of justice or fairness that's important to us no matter where we are. And we all want to master things and to have autonomy and to have a feeling of purpose. And you go through this list and if if we're anxious, if we are afraid, if we are fearful or angry, usually it comes back to one or more of those needs that we genuinely have that are not bad, that reflect who we are as humans, are not met. And there's a feeling of insignificance, of not mattering, of I'm an imposter, like we talked about earlier, or whatever that negative emotion is, it's just a reflection that there's an equal opposite thing that has not been met in us. And so we will irrationally do all sorts of other things to try to meet that need, rather than taking the time to say, what's under the surface of anger? What's under the surface of fear? What am I actually afraid about? What's the worst thing that could happen if my fear came true? Is it, is it really that bad? And to recognize, I'm not, I'm not afraid of that. I just my fear is that I won't matter, that I'll get to the end of my days and I wasn't significant, that I didn't contribute. I'll get to the, the fear that I'm, I might be estranged from my kids. I'll get to the fear that I, I feel insignificant and my contribution doesn't matter. It's, it's something in there that I'm not lovable. And when you realize that's what you're actually afraid of, and you can start to say, well, what would have to change? What would have to be true for you to not be afraid of that? There's, there's a windfall of questions or perspective or options that can fill that vacuum and fear just kind of starts to dissolve because, well, that was irrational. That was made up. I'm not fixed. I am loved. I am lovable. There's the same. It came like, it would give his life for me. And I'm a daughter of the, or son of the king. That's a different way to say, okay, well, now I can operate from that identity and move life forward from the perspective that says, whatever I do is, is, is gravy. And this is, I, I do my part in this world and the rest is above my pay grade. And that's, that's, God's job to handle that. Part of how I would answer the fear question. And also something that when you take about anti-human, then you mm-hmm. also can talk about the depopulation agenda. And I looked right. it up. I don't know the number itself for like Alaska, but the entire po- world's population, which is mm-hmm. like 7.6 billion population, would fit entirely into the state of Los Angeles. The entire <laughs> population of Earth, if you would give everyone one-fourth acre, they would get to one fourth acre if you put them in 48 contiguous US states. So mm-hmm. oftentimes it's not a matter like, you know, the resources of the planet can happen, the population is the distribution of resources or how well we manage it, because mm-hmm. this whole overpopulation also when we see in industrialized countries that the population is going down, maybe lifting people out of poverty, could have people have less children, so then we can distribute. If you would mm-hmm. distribute them well over more people, the problem mm-hmm. would like be solved. But that's again with the climate change. There's too many mm-hmm. people. People spread diseases, parasites. This kind of image of mm-hmm. other human beings we should care about. This mm-hmm. is also something that's been pushed increasingly the last twenty years. Oh, thank you for absolutely. And if you can have the 
opportunity to just entertain the thought experiment. What if contagion wasn't real? What if this whole climate change thing was just the political football? Mm. What if it is a tool mm -hmm. used by people who want to have more and more power? There have always been, and there will always be, people on the planet who have an insatiable desire for power, and they will do whatever it takes to get more of it. John Rockefeller, when he was alive, considered the wealthiest man in the world, he was asked, how much more money do you need to have to be satisfied? And he said, just a little bit more. There's this never-ending yeah. need to have, you've got more than everyone, you need more? Yeah. That was his answer. There's this insatiable need to accumulate and to centralize and to own and to feel like king of the world. We could psychoanalyze what childhood wound or sickness they are dealing with. But yeah. the point is, if you're someone who thinks like more and more, I have to have more. And there's the profession that is ruling, that is governance, that is big business becomes more and more attractive to you. And it slowly weeds out the people who aren't willing to just cut ethical corners and step on whoever they need to and do the most shady, sick things in order to climb and accumulate more, it kind of weeds out the people who don't want to be in that world. And what we're left with is what the world we're in today, right? Where people are willing to do whatever sort of nasty things are possible to force their agenda on the world. And we could throw in there climate change and we could throw in there contagion or virus or fear of death is really what they're getting at. And when we recognize, oh, they're, they're using climate and don't get me started on weather manipulation. That was another thing that blew my mind recently. If yeah, you told hard, me that yeah. two years ago, I would have been like, you're crazy. That's yeah. no way. And then you, you look into it and you look at the patent record and the news segments and the documentaries that have been made about our ability to control the weather. And or as the Air Force puts it, use weather as a force multiplier. You're like, okay, so yeah, we have the ability to tinker with nature and to scare people into these emergencies. And Prince Charles can come out and say, we need to have a warlike effort and spend trillions of dollars to fight climate change. And try to scare the crap out of us and it's it's just a never-ending cycle of if you look at if you learn to think like a globalist psychopathic sicko and think okay if i wanted to to rule the world what would i have to get under my control what would i have to be able to have people believe and you just it's gross to do it but put yourself in that headspace i would i would put myself in that space like hmm okay like and and i believe that most of the knowledge from sociology and psycholo psychology is being used behind the scenes for more power money and influence Mm -hmm. So like, hmm, let's take a look at these humans. What do they like? Oh, they seems to be really afraid of that. Yeah, that seems to be a very big trigger for them. And what mm -hmm. do they like to do? Like take care of each other and you have some in-group behavior. Mm, interesting. That's something we can work with. Okay. What if we have something that we enhance the fear of that? We present it as it's something to take care of people and we create some in-group behavior, you know, and that, that will make sure we get what we want. Perfect. Start a social experiment. That seems good. Let's do this. That seems to be the trigger for humans. Right. Well, and then, okay, what's, what could, then you have to think, okay, that's a good plan, but what could be their counter offensive? What might they do to organize themselves, to see through it, to wake people up? They've already thought of that. If you go look at the great reset yeah. plan, it's jaw dropping in the complexity of which they've thought of it, but they're thinking, okay, if we could manipulate the weather, if we could disrupt the supply chains, if we could tinker with the food, if we can keep them afraid of getting together if they don't want us to congregate the one thing we need to do is congregate if they don't want us talking they want us separate because as yeah. soon as we're separate we lose the ability to be human again and that what's one of the best weapons of fear is to keep us from being together and you start to see both the what would be the plan how would you manipulate humans but also how would you respond to their counteroffensive? It, so much of what we're living through starts to make sense and you realize we are in a battle between good and evil. There are people. I would say stay always critical, like mm -hmm. for instance, like Question because you can everything. also go deep deep into the rabbit hole 
mm-hmm. uh, if you want to. But for instance, the next big thing that they often talk about, and it's simple, I will do the translation, right? I will read the thing that they say it does, which is the beneficial thing that draws people in. Think like, I like that. That's what I want to go for. And then mm-hmm. I'm going to translate it into what's behind it. So these are the sustainable development goals. I will read them. Number one, no poverty. That means we're going to take your money. Zero hunger. That means we're going to take your food. Good health and well-being means we're going to take you sick and dependent on the pharma system. Quality education. That means we're going to indoctrinate the children from a younger age. Gender equality means we're going to destroy the polarity in relationships and the gender. Clean water and sanitation means we're going to take control of your water. You know, clean energy means we're going to take control of your energy. Uh, Decent work and economic growth, you have to have a social credit system and everything has to be reported to us else you're cut off or you have less finances. Uh, Mm -hmm. Industry, innovation, and agriculture, we're going to take control of your food. you know, all these things like sustainable cities and communities, we want you to live in cities through technology so we can track you more. Responsible consumption and production, we want to take control of your consumption and measure it. Climate action, we're going to use climate action to actually limit yourself more. Then, you know, housing and stuff is also, we want to take control of your housing so we own it. So all these things are presented as the nice sustainable development goal. So you read, it's like, that would be nice. Just translate it in. We're going to take control of that supply. We're going to take control of this. So we have more power, money, and influence. We can track and trace it. And we have more of your essential needs that we control. That are the sustainable development goals. (laughs) Nailed it. That is a brilliant analysis. That is exactly (laughs) what they're doing. And when we recognize that they use fluffy, flowery words like sustainability and equality, they don't mean that. They mean the opposite. They mean whatever it takes to give us more control. And you know, a, a question we can then ask, what's the urgency with this great reset? Of, you know, we're, mm-hmm. Welcome to year three, everyone. We're finally in year three of the 10-year <laughs> plan they're unfolding to do what you just mm-hmm. read to us. That vision of their mm-hmm. what we would call dystopia is their mm-hmm. utopia. They, the few rulers of the world, decide how the rest of us peons get to live. And to me, the urgency behind that is the recognition, like what they had, the control they had was was decent, but why did they need to do more? I, my working assumption is the monetary system, the banking system is about at the end of its life cycle. Yeah. It is about to implode. And we can look at evidence of that. We talk Argentina, Lebanon, uh, Greece, more currently Turkey, the, the European Central Bank, the ECB is about to go insolvent. And when you look at the urgency with which they're about to lose the game, the, the system is going to fold on itself. If you're out of moves in the game you've been playing to manipulate humanity, what do you have to do? You bump the board and knock all the pieces over so you reset the game. This, this great mm-hmm. reset they're trying to force on us is their opportunity to try to regain control, to centralize control and keep it because they have this insatiable need to do it. And they don't recognize that um, there's a better way to live. And if we can see what the, this reset is about, it's not about equality and sovereignty. And, and You can read the book, The Great Reset by Klaus Schwab. You can type in the right. PDF or order it's it. You can there. actually read it from the chairman of the World Economic Forum. I read the book. He published yeah. it four months after the crisis, so-called crisis, was there in June or yep. July 2020. Mm-hmm. You can read like what his goals are and what his plan are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as soon as you're willing to entertain the idea that there's a global assault on freedom organized by evil people who are psychopathic, who view you as cattle and are despise your own existence. And to think that there are people like 
we don't have to go too far back in history to see that there are people who think like that, who want control. And who, to your point, think it's good and needed to depopulate and kill. This is also what a lot of people think, like depopulate. Why would they do that? Because those kind of people, because they don't mm -hmm. need unism anymore. They're creating AI, machine learning. They they think in terms of, I don't know, it was Equilibrium, the movie, another sci-fi mm -hmm. movie, spoiler alert, sometimes when mm -hmm. you watch them now, they say humans are too unpredictable. These emotions make them aggressive, you know, make them unpredictable. We need to make uh, uh, humans more controllable. And then they focus mm -hmm. on the negative, you know, and reduce the population, etc. I think there's some mm -hmm. people who convince themselves of these things we can call psychopaths, that they really think that they create a utopia for like, yeah, we have to get rid of people. This is not sustainable. People create mm -hmm. so much pain and hate, etc. And that mm -hmm. they are really convinced that this is the next step in humanity or the next step in the evolution. Yeah. And, and whatever mix of depraved that may be, there's a, certainly a eugenics movement that I hate to say it started in the US. We shipped it to Germany and then brought it back yeah. after World War II. There's a, there's a eugenics view of the world. There's a satanic view of the world. And as uncomfortable as we might be believing, recognizing that there are people who think like that. There it goes the Aztecs, the Egyptians sacrificing yeah. children. Like there, yeah. to to assume that that sickness has been eradicated from the planet is mm -hmm. naive beyond belief. To think that people would no longer think like that. Well, no, there are people. They would just do it covertly. They would hide what they're doing, and they would, to your point, try to give us all these flowery, great examples of yeah. utopia that they're going to shape us into and shoehorn us into this vision. And it doesn't matter if you or I find that offensive or don't believe that's a viable option for a religious category. What matters is that they believe it and they are centralizing the power and the wealth and the resources and the narrative in order to try to force that vision of what they think is a better world on the world. And as soon as we're able to say, okay, there are people who think like that and they, and to start to look at, at the events through that lens, it can give us a discernment and a wisdom to say, we're actually fighting evil. We're not trying to just go back to this free utopia where everything. Well, what people don't believe is let's say we put Reuters the World Health Organization, the World Economic Forum, Facebook, Google, LinkedIn, next to each other. And then we ask ourselves, how much are they determining the narrative of what allowed to be said and not? A massive amount. Because they're like, oh my God, so many people can't think the same way. It can be psychologically, perceptually, but just these institutions, just these people. Mm -hmm. how they are the gatekeepers of what is allowed to be said and censored. They determine a huge amount of the acceptable, between brackets, reality people are allowed to see. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying everyone is involved. I'm not saying like all these people met into a room, but when you just said what Reuters is printing, like this is the news, the big media corporations, the World Health Organizations, the World Economic Forum, you have clips from Klaus Schwab who's saying like, Yes, 30% of our leaders are youth global leaders, and we got a really nice grassroots movement, leaders, activists, etc. Trudeau was a youth global leader. Yep. Alexander de Croo of Belgium was a youth global leader. Merkel was a youth global leader. 30% of the cabinet were from the, the World leader, Economic the, Forum. He admitted it. Argentina, more than 30% was a youth global leader. Yacinda Arden was a youth global leader. Yeah, uh, Macron Zuckerberg. was a huge global leader. So all these things, when you look at, there's a huge tie in combination between those people. So even if you don't believe, you can see the ties and where they come from. And they, they centralize a lot to the same institution or the same linkages. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Klaus Schwab was recently on video and he used the word penetrated, which was like kind of offensive. He says he was yeah. gleefully talking about how his young leaders had penetrated, yeah. was his word. Yeah. The cabinets of governments all over the world, 
And as part of the plan to roll out this vision, he's 80 something years old. The guy's going to yeah. croak at some point. Like he's yeah. doing his best to birth this vision and he needs the young people with the control and the technology and the charisma to try to do it. And when you can recognize that there's a, that level of puppeteering going on, you throw some Soros and Gates and central bankers who like to hide behind anonymity yeah. in the mix, it's not as mysterious. And we can actually start to identify our enemy and we can, thus men can go become alphas again and we can go hunt and the women can help in the way that they are protective mama bears and they can join forces. We can, there's an unstoppable force that we have to block this. Yeah, and you have to unpeel the layers, right? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, I mean, there's so many, I mean, always think critically and don't buy everything. Think for yourself, look at different perspectives. But I still have some people, you know, for instance, they're like, yeah, they're globalists and they're controlling us. But then when they talk about, yeah, the patriarchy and the wage gap and it's there, everyone abusing us. And I'm, I'm saying like, you haven't peeled the layer enough. This yep. is not no narrative. This is the right. prescribed narrative that serves to depolarize the, the, the sexes and set them up against each other and keep you also isolated. But they think like, I've seen the narrative or the onion. No, you just seen some layers. Cool. But look at also this story. Like, how much is that your story? Right. Well, and the, the interesting thing about just even the conversation we're having is that this is not typically the launch pad of a starting point to get somebody to recognize the full picture. They have to have an entry point somewhere. Yeah. Some, as yeah. soon as you start to question authority in some aspect of what we've been told, and you have found your bearings and you realize, wait a minute, this could be happening. Like for me, I've, I've been distrusting of pharma and big agriculture basically since 2003. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I saw right through this COVID narrative yeah. from the beginning, but I was clueless how ubiquitous and centralized and it's not just mm -hmm. the FDA and CDC that are captured. It's all of the regulatory agencies. Oh, and it's the World Economic Forum. Oh, and it takes a while to, to get your bearings because awakening is beautiful and liberating. And I can also be terrifying. And it can also be so unmooring to feel like I'm in this mix of my world is turned upside down. I don't know where to place my hope. I yeah. don't know who to trust. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a sense of community. I'm wearing this mask, walking around, trying to get groceries and get out of here before I get scared. That's yeah. a tough place to be. And if we can have some compassion for people that half or, or three quarters of what we've talked about, they're like, you whack jobs because they just, they're <laughs> yeah. not ready for that. Yeah, yet. yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I know that, that I, I don't, I'm curious about your stages, what you went through. I went from anger to grief to now. And I'm also curious what you now focus and where you get your energy and what you focus on to still speaking my truth, taking a stand, have some empathy towards the people to plant seeds of doubt so they wake mm -hmm. up. But I'm more grounded than I was like a year, two years ago. It was more like shouting mm -hmm. against the world, being angry, like blaming them. Idiots, don't you see it right now? You know, mm -hmm. but that's not serving the mission. It's actually feeding into, you know, the evil that tries to keep this, uh, you know, SCAM in, uh, intact, you know? Yeah, no, you're totally right. I, I guess my, my journey was high degree of skepticism from the start and understood the vaccine agenda or the narrative or, or how fear would be used to try to get all adults and everyone on the planet to be injected. And I guess where I find myself these days is I'm bored out of my mind with COVID as a, like, how many different yeah. ways can we disprove this yeah. whole thing? It's, I'm, yeah. I'm so beyond needing to talk about natural immunity or vaccine eff efficacy or VAERS data or, or you know, how the media has, is manipulating stuff. And I'm, I'm pivoting. You now know what? Like, I okay. actually more, more extreme, sorry to interrupt you. Like, I just go to the essence of this. Should we do this and this and this? Uh, guys, my stance is none of this was needed. Should we do this and outsider inside? Guys, none of this was needed and it didn't work. <laughs> right. uh, let's go to the essence of the conversation. None of this was needed. Right. Well, because the reality is that we, yeah, we can, we can shake our fists. <laughs> no, it wasn't. And, and 
we can shake our fist at the man <laughs> and the machine and all the tyranny that is trying to oppress us. And we can rally and protest and sign petitions and run for office and write our elected officials. And I don't think any of those things are bad. But was, I don't remember who said it, the quote, something to the effect of the way you transform a system is not by fighting, it's by building a better one. Mm. And so my focus of effort now is like, what would a flourishing society look like? What kind of community did I never have the awareness that that's what I actually wanted? What would it look like to have a local community to feel connected? And my foresight or my vision for what I want to work on the upcoming year is just to build that is to say, what does it look like to reclaim sovereignty, to yeah. take agency over the things that we have been given to steward and to disentangle from the control grid such that it doesn't matter what, what news they headline talk about or what different virus they want to throw out there. And it just becomes irrelevant. We've dissolved that because we have our own digital independence. We have our own monetary system. We have our own mm. way to procure our own food. We have community. We have home life. We have, like there's so many layers to which I, I don't I don't need to go to the hospital if something, unless I get in a, hit by a bus. I'm not I'm not going. I, I know how to heal at home. Like if, if we can take agency over the meaningful aspects of everything that we have allowed convenience to creep in and just take from us. And we can start to do the way it's going to be hard work. It's not going to be easy. And we're going to have to wait for something an extra week to show up in the mail when it could have gotten here two days ago with Amazon, right? We're going to have to do things that disentangle so that we're no longer dependent on that system. And we create a better flourishing society by just making their system irrelevant. We don't need it anymore. And we just welcome people into that new system, that new economy. And we find people that are still drowning. We pull them in the lifeboat and towel them off and catch your breath and you get your bearings, figure out what's actually going on. As soon as you're ready, get come over here and help me pull some more people in the boat. Like to me, that's rather than fight it, which there is some value in doing that because it exposes things and it wakes people up. And what's going on with the truckers and the protesting, I think is great. But where are we going? What is the new freedom going to look like on the other side? If we don't have a good model for that, my perception is we're going to slip right back into what we knew before, where people who want a lot of money and power are going to figure out a way to centralize it and do it covertly. And we'll just start over. So how do we not do that? I'm a huge fan of fairy tales. And maybe one day I'll write a fairy tale about uh, three brothers. One is called freedom. The other one is called meaning. And the other is called like uh, convenience or hmm. comfort. Yeah. And what I'm afraid is that people don't realize that you get meaning by sacrificing or mm -hmm. limiting comfort and convenience. Yeah, but to get be in, yeah, you get it in such a culture that oh, but that's attractive. The options, the Tower of Babel, the box of Pandora, you know, the dangling carrot that provides mm -hmm. these alternatives and a lot of possibilities. But they come back with with an empty uh, journey, you know, and that's very hard to convince now. Yes, more technology, more attractive options, metaverse, more living online, but it's not going to give you the meaning and the yeah. freedom you're looking for. And yeah. this is what worries me sometimes about this young generation that. People mistake true freedom for options, comfort, and convenience. Right. And too many options becomes way too um, unmooring. I don't need to know how to choose anymore. And then we realize the conveniences that we, by accepting them, we traded away freedom or that by believing the lie that fulfillment and happiness was found in things or in stature, and we've missed the whole plot of life to begin with. We're here on mission. If you can view your life as I'm a hero on a mission, fighting a particular injustice like what is your where is your life a counterattack to something unjust to your point that's going to be work right it's going to feel like effort it's going to be there's going to be struggle involved in that but that's where we find meeting is that we're in a broken world 
that needs people who are willing to fight and to not sit on the sidelines and cower in our basement and watch Netflix and play Nintendo. We need people who are willing to get out on the battlefield and say, enough is enough. And I am going to go love my neighbor ferociously. I'm going to give, I'm going to serve. I'm going to help fight the battle because that person is worth it. And to do that with humility, I don't have all the answers, but I know I can give a thirsty person a cup of water. I know I can help somebody find a meal. I know I can love on my neighbor when they're having a hard day and I can just be there. Like, those are the things that are a sacrifice to do it because we have to give of ourselves, but it's where the most rewarding moments of human existence come from when we matter to other people. This is why I also, that's my client close Academy. And my slogan is it's for rebels with a cause who take personal responsibility, speak that truth and make an impact. Mm-hmm. And I feel that's what I want rebels for a worthy cause. And when I, I don't have the money and resources right now to do it, but if I could change one thing, it's I completely rewire the education system, completely mm-hmm. rewire it mm-hmm. because it's based on compliance, obedience, memorizing. It's not based on self-awareness, you know, seeing your talents, contributing, not at all. It's like a slave mm-hmm. factory, basically. So all these people come outside of the slave factory, not knowing themselves, not knowing their strengths, feeling ashamed, feeling judged, mm-hmm. feeling that they can make an impact. They're broken people. So I, I'll often describe it like, how about if education, instead of a whole baggage of negative negativity, blame, guilt, not knowing yourself, you would have a whole backpack full of a positive toolkit that you can love yourself, know yourself, and make a difference in the world. Oh, Wouldn't man. that be awesome? Why are we only coaching people when they're at the end of the 20s and in their 30s? Why are we not coaching young people, getting them together, you know, masculine, feminine rights, uh, fire ceremony, sharing stories, rewarding people for the talents that they have? And that wouldn't that create a lot more sovereign and empowered people? Why yes, do we have this true. backwards education system from Prussia from the end of the 19th century? And we look at the education system and it doesn't no. make any sense to have this kind of education system in 2022. Well, it makes sense if you're trying to control everything. Yeah. If you're not, that system, that what a life-giving system you're imagining. And what would it mean to like to actually have like health and relationships and finance and relationship and, skills? Yeah, all so of how that to handle stuff, money. All hardwired into education and to be able to gift our kids something more than math and reading when they graduate yeah. and social isolation and pressure and all the different ways that we traumatize children within that system to give them a different experience. Like what a beautiful vision. And if we could go after, there's a great quote, I think it's Henry David Thoreau. There's thousands striking at the branches of evil. There's one striking at the root. And if we start nice. to strike at the roots of these yeah. problems, we can go after the education system or in my, from my perspective, go after the monetary system and reset that. If we could go after the roots of some of these institutions and, and rebuild ethical journalism, rebuild ethical medicine, rebuild, pick your industry. And we could have a system of moral money that so many of the problems we live with in society are because we have a system that is intentionally enslaving us via debt and inflation. And we don't even know that that's there. Take that off the pressure off of a family and you focus on the family unit and use that as a way to build society back. Oh my gosh, the opportunities we have for a better society are endless if we can start striking at the roots of evil rather than just the branches that questions of no importance they would prefer we be distracted by. Yeah, people sometimes want a solution like, you know, do the exact opposite of what they say. That's <laughs> sometimes <laughs> that is the solution. Is the yeah. solution you know? <laughs> yeah. How was the reaction to your article that you said like 18 reasons why you don't take the experimental gene therapy? Oh man, that was, you know, I, I published that somewhat reluctantly. I was like, oh, like, do I, like I had to eat my own cooking. I was like, step up and be a man and get in the fight. If there's something mm. important to say, 
do it. I, I had enough people asking me about my thoughts on it that I'm like, I should just save myself some time and put this somewhere. So I did. And I, I braced for vitriol and hatred and expecting to have this, like, I don't think I even looked at it for a day because I didn't mm. want to deal with whatever was coming. And to my surprise and delight, that went viral beyond my wildest expectations. It got over 5 million views just on my website and published in multiple languages and a lot of other bigger mailing lists sent it out. And what I found was I almost exclusively got, thank you. I finally somebody stepping up and saying something. And what it did for me was give me a, a courage that I didn't have before, a, a backbone or a mm. feeling of like, whoa, when you can speak truth and it resonates, people hear it. And if, and, and if I have a, I guess, a, a superpower, it might be that I do my best to be fair and level-headed and to really genuinely consider someone else's perspective and to not be too forceful with my opinion. And so mm -hmm. some of that is mixed into how I unfolded, why I'm choosing to not get it. And I think that is as much what people appreciate because it's not like anything I wrote isn't already out there in a million other places. It's just kind of a collection of thoughtfully, friendly saying, does this make sense to you? Because this doesn't make sense to me. But the my gosh, it, for anybody who's waffling on, do I throw my hand in the ring? Do I take a stand? Do I actually go out there and try to ruffle or know I'm going to say something that might ruffle some feathers? If you need a nudge or some, some courage to do that, be brave for 10 seconds and do the thing. And I, I would be shocked if what you don't find, yes, you're going to take some arrows in the back. I've taken some. I've got Snopes articles and fact checkers all over me. But if the quality of people you get to meet, or the, what to your point earlier, if like feeling like there's a struggle that's worth it, there's, there's a battle here that needs another voice. When you recognize that you get to step into a meaningful fight and you can, if you can do it with humility, then you can say, nobody does this. Who's, if I don't do it, who's going to in my neighborhood? And what you, I would be surprised if you don't find is that people coming out of the woodwork and say, thank you. Oh my gosh, that was so meaningful. And the caliber of people that you get to meet or the, the depth of relationship and understanding you get to have because you took mm -hmm. a courageous step goes up so significantly. And it feels really good to be on the winning team. It feels good to be on the side of truth and to not be silent because there's that internal dissonance of, I know this, but I'm living under a spirit of fear. What if you didn't live under a spirit of fear anymore? What if you stepped into power and love and self-discipline or a sound mind? And you just said, I defy you to make me afraid anymore. Yes, this may sad me. Yes, I may lose some friends. Yes, I may temporarily at least lose some friends. But I'm not going to sit on the sidelines anymore. I'm going to take a stand and do it and just watch how life-giving it, it can be. Yeah, they say a good, a, a, a good conscience is the best pillow. Right, and who you see, uh, you know, uh, do the action, and you shall reinforce yourself. But that mm -hmm. uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, a good friend of Holy David Thoreau, said, and yeah. when you see those experiments that being done with conformity, you didn't need the majority to convince the so-called, you know, other people. You just needed mm -hmm. some brave people who like spoke up, mm -hmm. and that's sometimes what amazed me, especially with such a lack of integrity. Sometimes is the influence slash coaching industry. You don't have to wake people up on their wall all the time, but some people are acting like not horrendous stuff is happening. <laughs> Let's mm -hmm. make money and act like everything is fine. Beautiful pictures on the beach, et cetera. It's fine. Like motivate people, sell your life-changing service, hopefully. Mm -hmm. But just like chilling out and just riding the waves of momentum and not fighting for humanity or future, I don't get it at all. There's so many people that when push comes to so shove, they, they don't stand for their values. Mm -hmm. Yet recently, like Brene Brown, who said, like, I'm not going to publish my episodes anymore on Spotify, you know? And she's the person who said, like, it's not the critic that counts. The person who speaks in the arena says for honest debate, hard conversations, you know, and then just not shaming people. You're shaming 
Spotify and Joe Rogan to not take a stance and have hard conversations. And then she backpedals like, sorry, I just want to take a break. I didn't know. I should have communicated better. Someone who really minds her communication and steps a lot in team building. She didn't know that. Like, whoa. Like, how, yeah. how can you reconcile this with your basic principles and your integrity of what you stand for? A lot of stuff seems to be good marketing or mm-hmm. principles that people really need. But when push comes to shove, they don't stand for them when, when it gets hard. Yeah, gets well, challenged. The character is it shows up when it's challenged, not when we talk about it. If you don't have character, th- enough pressure will will expose that, and it isn't always necessarily a bad thing that it exposes. I I take Brene Brown to be a thoughtful person, and I imagine the blowback she got for her position might actually <laughs> wedge itself into her thinking a little bit and be like, you know what, I I'm now living in contradiction with what I've been saying for a long time, and mm-hmm. so I, I wouldn't give up hope on her. But hopefully, it's a moment where hopefully, you can go, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Like I'm not living in line with what I said I believed. What would it mean for me to do that? What stand would I have to take? What she's already got arrows. You might as well swing it the other way and and, and get some from the people. You I'm just think. a stubborn, stubborn. I'm, I'm a fucker. You know, when people say like, yeah, you know, that you said that shit and that's misinformation. It's like, are you going to apologize? No, I'm not going <laughs> to apologize. Maybe I did some stuff that I didn't regret. I did it there. That was my version. It's my podcast. And uh, mm-hmm. you can go uh, after yourself. Yeah. Like that whole cancel culture and apologize because you did this tweet and et cetera. Yeah, I said that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What do you think about it? I don't know. Could have phrased it then, but at that time it made sense. Free speech, hallelujah, and uh, doing my thing. Like yeah. if you don't like it, what have it happened to, to moving on? Just move on. Yeah. Maybe it's not for you. <laughs> so, it's fine. No. Wish you the best. Bye. Thank you for the feedback. Right. Not going to no, change I it, but wish you the best. Maybe develop something else. Maybe that will work for you. Bye. Have the best. Bye. Yeah. No, sometimes <laughs> there's, a, there's a fine line between. Being able to know when to move on in an argument and to <laughs> humbly just not need to apologize for it. Like, you'll wake up when I've got a, a friend that I was the impetus for an article I started about that called it the COVID Wizards. And it's just a like, oh, I, I could not get through to this person. She was just like, wall, every, yeah. no matter what yeah. I said. And sometimes you just have to go, right, what's a better, there's somebody else who's interested to hear or, or ready to wake up. Let me see if I can find those people. And so, I think one thing that we are, a malady we have as humans is that we are really bad at seeing our own blind spot. We're really bad mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. apologizing or we're, we stink yeah. at being wrong. And we would much rather dig our heels in and throw mud at someone else and take, okay, whatever Fauci's going to say, I just need to hurry up and say something so I can throw it back at my friend. Like, yeah, yeah. rather than saying, is there a better way I could have handled that? Like, what would it be like if mm. I was wrong? And to do that without questioning your intelligence or, or feeling like you're a worthless thinker and just say, maybe uh, somehow I came across as offensive to my friend. Somehow I, that argument didn't land. Like, what would it look like for me to repackage it in a way that could? And that's where the discernment comes into like, am I throwing pearls before pigs here? Is this even like, I don't, pigs don't do anything with jewelry. It doesn't mean anything to them, but maybe there's a better way I could come up across. And so much of our tension these days is because we're terrible at dialogue. We have nobody that models fair, level-headed, civil discourse. And so we don't have a frame of reference for what it could look like. And to your point, sometimes you just say, okay, I had to move on from this one. (laughs) Sometimes, but how how could we package it better? And how can we all become welcoming of the idea that maybe I'm wrong? I've, I've, I teach that for my clients and mm-hmm. I've turned that on myself so many times. And that, I think that's why I've been able to see COVID as a bigger narrative because I was like, I'm sign me. I'm in the category of people that was 
that completely bought hook, line, and sinker the 9-11 narrative that mainstream media fed us. Like, yeah. I missed that, okay. right? Yeah. yeah and yeah. But I, I had enough sense to question, to go, crap, well, did I miss that too? Like, what mm-hmm. else did I not know? And I didn't have this, woe is me, I'm an idiot, I can't, I need to hide that I now think yeah. differently, to be able to accept it and say, I was wrong. What else am I wrong about? Let's have a dialogue here. We just, we don't have that very much. And so the more places we can foster it, the better, I think. You have to, or choose to develop the skill to know what kind of conversations you can have with certain people and who deserve that conversation. So one of the things for certain people is you can't be all people pleasing and codependent and try to please everyone. So Mm -hmm. stop justifying yourself. Mm -hmm. For the right people, you don't have to justify yourself. You can have an honest discussion and dialogue. But, you know, if you're a trainer and you help people lose weight and then someone says like, oh, I'm perfectly fine. I go to McDonald's. If this person is not ready to have a conversation about health, it's not for them. It's fine. It's just not for them. Start switch the topic. You're not on a mission to convince everyone. You don't have to justify yourself. You can learn, be open to feedback and criticism, but be mindful of who you have certain conversations with and then be open to it. But other people like, you can see it with the whole COVID thing, if you can start a conversation or not. And then when you see like, oh, you know, there's nothing possible. He just shifted attention or you stopped screaming to the wind. It's not useful for them, not useful for yeah. your mission. And it just leaves you drained. So it, it has no point at all. Yeah, no, you're right. And the, the sharper that discernment filter gets, the more you're picking battles that actually have a chance of being won. And somebody else will get through to that person you couldn't reach. And eventually that question or that perspective you had starts to take up more space in their head and maybe someday they come back and we're going to lose a lot of people to this whole narrative. We've already lost a lot. And to, you know, Dale Carnegie's classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence yeah. People, decades ago, he, he, one of the first chapters is how stubbornly we, we cling to the idea that we are right. And convicted felons, where there's a multitude of witnesses that saw the crime, can say this person's guilty of that thing. And the person goes to their deathbed saying, that's not what happened. I didn't do that. It wasn't wrong. You didn't understand me. You misjudged. And to be honest, they, they were guilty. They just, there's something hardwired in us that says, no, I can't be wrong. And as soon as you can let go of that, it's, it's freedom because you realize you're not right. There's no way everyone can know yeah. any, everything anyway. So experiment, try a different way of, of seeing things, see what you can learn. And if you don't have a good thought partner you're in dialogue with, move on. Somebody else is ready to be that person. If people want to become a sovereign human being, if they want to empower themselves in a unconventional or more holistic way, where can they find out more about you and uh, what you do? Okay. Yeah. So you can find our a few different places. We have a um, website called truewholehuman.com. You can find out about our coaching program on there. Starting first quarter of this year, we're going to be doing a program called the Sovereignty Project, which is really all about reclaiming the sovereignty and, and what we see is kind of the six major areas of life that we need to have agency if we want to be outside the tyrannical control grid. So that's about a year long program of just learning and disentangling and repeating in different important areas. And so you could find that at truewholehuman.com slash sovereignty. Um, you can also find my blog where we, we've talked about some of those articles. It's deconstructingconventional.com. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter at the bottom of any blog post. Or if you want to reach out to me in person, you can just uh, type in Christian at truewholehuman.com and send me an email. Last question. What is the most weird, abnormal, strange medicine, alternative medicine methods that you ever tried? Ooh, that I've tried? What, that rules out things I've heard of that haven't not tried yet. I have the weirdest one. Like an enema or? 
I've done an enema. Yep, coffee enema. I have done that. That would be up there. A few different, like Toyohari is a, is a discipline where they actually, instead of putting the needle in you, they just put it on you. It's like, does that really work? But, really? So that, that's a different one. Yeah, there's from enemas to like, probably the, the ones that are the most fascinating to me would be the microcurrents, like the recognition that we are electrical first and chemical second. And the, you know, the earth has an electrical field. That's why a compass works. There's electricity all around us all the time. And we're bathing in this cacophony of noisy electricity constantly. But every different process the human body has, has its own frequency, has its own little resonance at which it operates. It's just part of the acoustic signature of that process. Mm. And so many of those processes get interrupted. And, it, and what microcurrent uh, therapy can do is actually help your body find the current of what is digestion? What is, you know, pick that, what, how would this type of tissue heal itself? And to be able to have that current go through your body and actually get past areas where there's stuck stress or where the current's not flowing well. That was a fascinating one. Somebody just put their hands on me and, and you feel this current going through you. And sometimes it's involuntary and sometimes you don't even feel it. So that would be probably the weirdest one I've done. And psychedelics have it or Cambo or other stuff? I have no, I, I know someone who does Cambo and I might <laughs> go do that. If you don't know Cambo, it's like drink a whole boatload of water and then you take frog venom and you... Uh, <laughs> And puke your guts out for like 30 minutes and the stuff that comes out of you is shocking. So yeah, I, I will probably be doing that one in the next month or so, but I have not done psychedelics and I have not done cambo. Well, see, it's still a lot to explore, still a lot to uncover and see what's unconventional and maybe very constructive. Thanks so much for creating sovereign human beings, helping people stand in their power, speaking for what's right and being a guest on the podcast, Christian. Thank you so much, Philippe. It was really a lot of fun. I sure enjoyed it. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and support our mission of freedom of speech. With increasing restrictions on fundamental freedoms, we believe that now, more than ever, is the time for you to be an online coach or consultant and become independent from the system. That's why we created the Client Closer Academy. Learn how to consistently enroll clients and join a community of fellow free thinkers who value personal responsibility, speaking their truth, and making an impact. Find out more at clientcloser.com slash academy. Rant over.